you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. We haven't told the story of the people of color being the best. There is this story that the people of color need to be represented, but they're not going to be as good, and it's a huge favor. That's the story that's sort of out there. Writer, producer, and actor Gloria calderon Kellett. The story needs to change, which is this is going to make your show better. Having these people is going to make your show better. They're the writers that when we go down, they get hired first because they're so good. Because they're so good, not because they're Latino, but because they're so good and they happen to be Latino, how cool, right? So I think that it's it's allowing the industry to say, there's room for all of us, so make room in your room for all of us. I'm John Horn. Virtually all of Hollywood production is at a standstill. But the way Calderon Kellett sees it, that doesn't mean things aren't happening behind the scenes. In fact, she believes there's a reckoning underway. This is Hollywood, the sequel. Welcome to our podcast from Elia Studios. It's where we ask some of the entertainment industry's sharpest minds to share their solutions for Hollywood's longest standing problems. And we also explore some new challenges created by the pandemic, like how do you keep a TV show on the air? That's the dilemma that Gloria Calderon Kellett is currently facing with One Day at a Time. She'd actually been dealing with it even before the pandemic hit. The show, which is centered on a Cuban-American family in L.A., was canceled after three seasons on Netflix, and then it was picked up by the cable channel Pop TV. It premiered this March, right in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, and then everything shut down. We had just finished shooting our sixth episode. So we were in pre-production on episode seven when we had the shutdown. So we have half the season. So what we did is Mike and I, Mike, my wonderful co-showrunner, and I continued uh, doing the writer's room via Zoom. And we finished tabling all of our scripts. So all 13 episodes are now written and ready for when this ends. And then I had the idea, what if we could animate one of the episodes? Thankfully, uh, we were able to produce one animated episode, which was a ball So we've now completed our work. We've done post on all of the episodes. Everything has now been released. And we are just waiting to see what the fate of the show is because we don't know. I think for a lot of shows, we also can't help but think all of us creators can't help but think, does this, does COVID kill our show, right? Like, does it, does it end a lot of shows that are making, you know, making their way and and trying to get by and can't survive this, this time or this much time off? Do you think that's a real possibility? Because nobody has really expressed that, that there's going to be different kinds of shows, but that shows on the bubble may not make it at all. 
absolutely. I mean, I've seen it already. I've seen great shows already get canceled that I think would have had a shot had COVID not happened, for sure. The good thing for writers like herself, Calderon Kellett says, is that they're able to keep writing. But for her actors and the show's 200-plus crew members who are waiting to return to work, it's a much more difficult situation. But even with so much hardship, Calderon Kellett is hopeful. This might be a moment of transformational change. I think that what's great about quarantine is it is impossible to escape self. And I think that as a result of that, people are digging deep and looking at the problems that have existed for a really long time. I mean, look, the the founding fathers came up with something that was really ingenious in, in setting up this country, this very radical idea of, of starting a new country. And there was a lot of stuff they did right. And there's a lot of stuff that they did that was informed by their own systemic racism that they had been uh, living with, right? And we have to, I think it's great to be able to look at a system and say, hey, we did some things right, but we did a lot of things wrong too. Let's see if we can improve it. And I think as everyone is in quarantine and everyone is embarking on some sort of reckoning with themselves, we are also going through this racial reckoning and this reckoning as a country about what works, what doesn't work, what has been working for some people, but what has been taking away from other people and how that that lineup exist in Hollywood big time. So, you know, people always think Hollywood is so liberal. I, I haven't found it super liberal at all, <laughs> at all. Um, I have found it to be just as tricky as anywhere else. And I think conversations are being had now that I have been having forever. And it's exciting now that other people are having those conversations because I think that's where actual change can happen. So I think it's an exciting time, and I think it's a very hopeful time. I would call it lip service liberalism, and that means you host a benefit for the rainforest in your backyard, and then you get on your private jet to fly off to your 8,000-square-foot house in uh, Park City, Utah. So let's just say it's not going to be lip service liberalism, that there's going to be real change, and people are going to start to alter behavior. What are the kinds of things that you would hope for that people will start doing differently or stop doing altogether? Well, I think that we need to reflect the country as it is. I think that part of the reason, in my own opinion, this is just Gloria thinking this, part of the reason I think we are so on opposite sides right now is because we watch different stuff. I think that there was a time in our country that we could relate to each other more easily because at least we were consuming the same pop culture. And that pop culture informed our conversations with one another. So all of us were watching Little House on the Prairie and all of us were watching I Love Lucy and all of us, right? It certainly informed my parents coming to this country with a wide open door and hey, we wanna save you from communism, Cubans, come on in. And oh, here, a path to citizenship and you can uh, send your kids to college and you can buy homes and you, I lived it, right? I lived what this country did beautifully, which is I thrived in one generation. Here I am, I have thrived, my parents have thrived. It works. It works if you if, if you allow people a, a way to have freedom and then give them the opportunities to have that freedom and to live it. So I know I know what it looks like because I've lived it. So we don't do that now. And we also don't tell stories that are reflective of that now. I feel very much like had Ricky Ricardo not been on television, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Once upon a time in the woods live a peasant. He was a good man with a noble heart. He spent his time in the forest 
Corin down bujus from the trees. Corin wood. Wait, oh. wait, wait, just a minute. What is this bujus? Bujus, right in there. That's bows. That you think that that opened doors for people to see people who sounded different to be accepted. That's right. I think they were like, oh, a bunch of Ricky Ricardo's awesome. Bring them in. Whereas now when Latinos are 3% of what's on television and that 3% is largely rapists and criminals and gangbangers and all the things that everyone's afraid of, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we don't want those people here. Oh my God, they're going to kill us. They're going to, we have this beautiful way of life and we want to keep it safe. They don't, the story is important. The story is important. And so for me, who has never, I don't know anybody in a gang. I've never been exposed. It's just not at all what my experience is in this country. So I want to offer other realities. I want to offer that having a diverse writer's room is great for conversation. It is great. I lo- My room that was, it was largely Latino. We have white people in the room too, of course. But it's a largely Latino room. The conversation we had in there was beautiful. It was beautiful. Very queer room because we obviously have a lot of queer characters on the show. And there was constant like, I, you know, I'm a straight cis woman. So I'd be like, okay, lesbians, I need to ask, can I, (laughs) I, with respect, I may say things, I'm going to say this wrong, but I'm going to, I really want to understand what this is. So can I make some mistakes here maybe and apologize in advance? And they're like, yes. And we were allowed to make mistakes finding our way towards each other. And that's the kind of bridge building I'm looking to do when I make stuff. And that's what I think Hollywood can do as well as we try to write this wrong by literally writing more material that is inclusive of many different experiences and make representation matter in a way that we see it matters in the polls. We see it matters in terms of the census this year. People of color are largely underrepresented because of fear and because of you know several reasons that then determines how they can vote. It determines it determines so much. The next 10 years of our lives is based on the census. So all of this trickles. The storytelling is fun and entertainment in Hollywood, but it trickles into the world. I've seen it and lived it. So that's my deep uh, desire to make change is I just know how it can work for good. And I want that for other people. Coming up, Gloria Calderon-Kellett challenges producers to take a chance on new voices or else. If we need to resort to shame, we resort to shame. (laughs) I mean, that's true. If if people are willing to do that work on their own, then I think it's okay for, for for society to call it out and say, dude, come on, what are you doing? The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. 
I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. So I'm going to read you something that you tweeted out recently. Here's what you said. Pay attention, Hollywood. You don't have to wait to be challenged to do the work of reaching out to underserved voices. Use this platform for good. In a 30-minute window, I asked to meet black trans writers and the internet provided. Zooms with them were a joy. It is not hard. Do it. But so few people will. I stand by my quote. But what does it take people to expand their circle and not say, well, I'm going to hire that person because they shot this movie or this person's going to be my showrunner because they had those three network series that were big hits, that so much of the business is founded on familiarity and relationships. And that's how we keep getting the same cycle of shows and people running the same series of shows. That's how it becomes systemic. Look, if I'm being really generous... It is so hard to get a show on the air. It's so hard. And some people get to do it once, right? So if you get that opportunity as a showrunner, I'm a white male showrunner and I finally have my shot. I want to do everything I can to crush it, right? And we haven't told the story of the people of color being the best. There's this story that the people of color need to be represented, but they're not going to be as good. And it's a huge favor. That's the story that's sort of out there. The story needs to change, which is this is going to make your show better. Having these people is going to make your show better. And if it's going to be them or some guy that some college kid that just graduated at 22, I promise you, you're going to want the person who's hustled, who's struggled, who's written at that, who's done their 10,000 hours of crappy scripts and drafts and is ready to come and crush it for you. You want to do that. It's a benefit for you to do that. And I don't think that that's a frame of reference that most cis white male writers have had when they've been in the seat of showrunner because they haven't had to think about it. So I think that a lot of people are good and are trying to do good things, but then they're in the chair and they just want to do everything they can to keep the power. And they don't understand that this is a good thing. This can challenge you to grow in ways that that you weren't even sure you you would grow and change. And so it's been really rewarding in my own rooms to see that happen, to see our writers of color and our queer writers and our underserved writers be amazing and offer and, and with given the guidance, be the people that are now writing the best scripts for us. They're the writers that when we go down, they get hired first because they're so good. Because they're so good, not because they're Latino, but because they're so good and they happen to be Latino, how cool. Right. So I think that it's it's allowing the industry to say there's room for all of us. So make room in your room for all of us. What you're talking about is a clear results oriented way of thinking. And so much of the way the town thinks is about compliance. Like we're going to have our minority writer so we can check that box. We we're going to get that out of the way. We're going to get that person in the room. But what you're saying is, look, 
forward and then back at how you get there rather than saying, I've checked the box. I have a minority writer on, in my writing right. room. And also you can't have a minor, my, so I've been the minority writer, right? I've been that person. I'm sometimes the only woman, sometimes the youngest, sometimes the, you know, you're the baby writer. You're called baby writer, which is already so, you know, it's not what you want to hear getting you're you're given your first professional writing job and you're like the baby writer. So there's already so many things in the terminology, baby writer, diverse hire, like all of these are these extra things you have to walk in with. And then nobody's guiding you. You're just like thrown in and like swim, like you're like literally it's like swim. So it's harder to do that if nobody's guiding. And I was fortunate that at every job there would be people who would come and were, were kind to me. And you don't forget those people who like took the extra time and who tried to explain things and who tried to, you know, be kind to you. But you you have to there is extra work involved. There is work involved in in making sure it's harder to are you kidding? Do you know how hard it was for me to talk in some of these early rooms? And I'm not somebody who's quiet. But for me, so I can't even imagine somebody who had a little bit less of, you know, who had more insecurities than I did or had even more weight walking into those rooms, how difficult it must have been for them. And you're just expected to like sink or swim. So now that we're having these conversations, I think people are a little bit more open to understanding like, oh, yeah, I guess that would be really hard coming into a space like that. Like Mike Royce, I remember one day there was something that we did, a panel or something that we did. And he was like, you walk into the same room to do the same job as me, but you have to do like five jobs. And him saying that out loud, like I literally started crying because I felt so, I didn't know I needed somebody to see me in that way. And I was like, thank you for seeing me, Mike, right, you know. And, uh, and he's like, no, it's really, he's like, it's really opened my eyes and it changed the way he show runs. It changes the way that he talks to writers now. And it's it's to the benefit of all of us. It's just been such a rewarding experience on on our show. So how do other people learn that lesson? Because it's a very hard lesson to learn because you have to see it and experience it. A white driver can't understand what it means to be driving while black. We just can't. We can hear stories. Maybe we can sit in the back of a car, but we never understand that. But there are people in the business who might understand what it means to not come from a very narrow group of people. How do they go about learning that? I think they have to accept the fact that it's going to be uncomfortable and that's okay. Discomfort is okay. And you have to look at your own stuff in terms of your own discomfort. If there's something in somebody that's like, oh, I want to do that, but I'm resistant. I think you need to look at why you're resistant. What is that? Face whatever that is that's making you resistant. Are you resistant because you're worried they're not going to be as good? Then then understand your own, your own uh, bias, right? Your own bias and realize that you have to kind of move through your own bias if you're going to actually be a part of positive change. This is a town that is fueled by insecurity. And the idea of people asking themselves those tough questions seems, I mean, it's, I hope it would happen, but it seems like such a reach for people to challenge their own shortcomings because that's not something that most people even admit to. It's true. No, I think you're right. And then if we need to resort to shame, we resort to shame. <laughs> I mean, that's step. true. If, if people are willing to do that work on their own, then I think it's okay for, for, the, for society to call it out and say, dude, come on, what are you doing? What are you doing right now? You want to be on the right side of this or not? You know, like it's, this is the time. This is the time to say, I mean, for so long, I've just been quiet about so many things that I'm, my silence has, con has allowed these behaviors to continue. And for the longest time, 
I think I needed to be quiet in order to keep myself safe in a system that I didn't, that I was so uh, grateful to be a part of and, uh, and didn't want to be asked to leave the room, right? Like that, that was really where so much of it came from. And I think as I gain my own power and as I see the 10,000 behind me that are, that are working so hard to get through the door, I now have to be an advocate for them. And I now have to call out behavior that before I, w- I may have let go because I was scared myself. Do you think that kind of self-censorship is endemic to people who may not be straight white men, that you are always being extra cautious to make sure you're not, you know, upsetting the apple cart? For sure. For sure. And I think that there are rooms that had I spoken up, I would have been fired. So you don't, right? Because you're trying to stay, you're trying to stay in the system and learn and grow. So I, I, my hope is that we're able to have these conversations in a way that I don't like the concept of cancel culture. I don't believe in it. I, there's no growth to cancel culture. The growth is let's have a real conversation about why this exists, how we can do better, why aren't people doing better, how can we help them to do better, and then as they're trying to do it, they're going to fail and that's okay. And like all of these are are essential steps in growth. There's going to be growing pains. That's part of the growth. But those are the hard conversations and let's have them and let's try to work through them because Boy, the other side feels great. I think we're all going to have a way better time on this planet if we can get through it. In the weeks to come, we'll hear from writers and performers who worry about what will be lost in the aftermath of the pandemic. Here's Glenn Close. For me, the process is everything. As an artist, the process of creation with the whole collaborative team that we deal with on a daily basis in what we do, that is what feeds my soul. Our thanks to Gloria Calderon-Kellett and to you for listening. We hope you'll subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Hollywood The Sequel was produced by Shelley Lewis and Monica Bushman with help from Darby Maloney and Jessica Pilot. Our engineer and sound designer is Eduardo Perez, and our theme music is composed by Nicholas Bertel. Hollywood The Sequel is a production of Elia Studios. I'm John Horn. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.